Good afternoon, everybody. Let us uh, begin with the uh, second session, uh, which is about liberalism, secularism, the nation state. Our two speakers this afternoon, to my far, to my, to my far right, Professor, Professor Elizabeth Shackman Hurd. Uh, she's a professor of uh, political science at Northwestern University, or of politics. <laughs> she teaches and writes on religion and politics, the politics of human rights and the right to religious freedom, the legal governance of religious diversity, U.S. foreign relations, and the international politics of the Middle East. Her work pursues an integrative approach to the study of politics and religion that offers insights into dilemmas of national and international governance involving difference, governance, power, law, and pluralism. She is a regular contrib contributor to public discussions on U.S. foreign policy and the politics of religious diversity. And among her many academic publications are The Politics of Secularism in International Relations from 2008 and Beyond Religious Freedom, The New Global Politics of Religion from 2015, both published by Princeton. And uh, to my closer right, uh, Yolande Janssen or Janssen, should I say? Uh, in Dutch, you should say Janssen. Janssen, <laughs> who is uh, an associate professor of social and political philosophy at the University of Amsterdam and a board member of the Amsterdam Center for Globalization Studies. And she is also a special professor for the Socrates Foundation at uh, VU University. Say the full name. In, uh, the Free University of Amsterdam. The Free University. Where she holds the chair for Humanism in Relation to Religion and Secularity. Her research deals with social and political philosophy, in particular critical theory, pluralism, multiculturalism, and democracy, genealogies of secularism, humanism, and religion, irregular migration, Judaism in Europe, Islam in Europe, and French culture and literature, in particular the work of Marcel Proust. Among her many publications are Secularism, Assimilation, and the Crisis of Multiculturalism, French Modernist Legacies, available for free online, yeah, yes. That's, no, yes. And uh, the irregularization of migration in contemporary Europe, deportation, detention, drowning. Thank you so much. Uh, would you start, please, with some uh, opening? Uh, Absolutely. Thank, Thank you, you. Um, for having me, Yaakov. I appreciate the invitation. It's my first visit to Oxford, so I'm very happy to be here, even just for a few hours. Um, I study the legal and political lives of religion. Um, as a category, and I looked particularly at the concept of secularism and its legal and political life in my first book, and then in my most recent book, Beyond Religious Freedom, looking at the construct of religious freedom, and its very uh, contested and uh, contentious international legal and political life. Um, so I'm interested in kind of looking at how these concepts get operationalized and lived out and fought over and imagined and reimagined um, in a variety of public governance um, settings and contexts. Um, and so today, I actually took Yakov up on the, on, on the challenge to try to uh, think very specifically about what the title of this symposium, which is Dialogues on the Theopolitics of the Nation State, Israel in a Wider Context. And I want to talk a little bit about a couple of concepts that I think can help us have this conversation and then um, talk about a new book that I think will uh, 
also bring a comparative angle onto the Israeli case that I will turn to near the end. And what I'm calling this concept is the religion trap. And the religion trap is something that I want to emphasize all traditions in all states are equally susceptible to. And this trap is to conflate broad, contested, shifting traditions with specific forms of state power and state interpretations of religion. Um, this is kind of secularism par excellence. It's a form of secularist politics. And although we, we are well past, um, I know, secularism and religion in any sort of stable, reified understanding because we've been through our deconstructive move already this morning, and I think that's important and helpful, and I also think we're done with that <coughs> in this yeah. field. I think it's time to move on, and I think it's time to start thinking about the fact that these concepts have political and legal lives that we have to reckon with. And so understanding the variety of those lives, I think, is very important to, to understand better how they shape people's um, actual lives. So the religion trap, um, I think, is, a, is, is this just a heuristic that I'm using um, that, that reflects secularist anxieties about defining the religious and confining it to certain legible and manageable spaces and places. So whenever you hear a reference to religion or the religious, it is a secularist claim. It is a secularist move in our contemporary context to make those kinds of statements. Um, what the religion trap does in this collapsing of these broad traditions into very narrow understandings of them, um, specific forms of state power, what it does is that it reproduces certain collective understandings of how the religious or religion looks in the modern world, which is something that has legible authorities, texts, and institutions that often look more or less like churches. Winnie Sullivan refers to religion in the American legal imaginary as taking up a church-shaped space in her new book that'll be out next year. Um, and I think this is really helpful to think with. The religion trap also reflects an inability to really think about religion, to think theologically, to contend with the political and the ethical stakes and the limitations of trying to do so. In its starkest forms, I think it reflects a secularist tendency to take at face value state-sponsored realizations of representations of religion or the religious. It also, and I think this is important to understand, enjoys the support of many religious authorities who are well served by a stable, bifurcated binary between the secular and the religious that allows them to be comfortable and empowered politically. So this is part of what I refer to in Beyond Religious Freedom as the new global politics of religion. And this is a, a completely different stage in the trajectory of what we call secularism or secularization. So I think it's worth remembering as Nadia Marzuki argues, that the religious-secular divide is contextually produced and contested rather than existing as any kind of predefined historical structure. And there's a quote from a 2015 piece by Talal Assad that I think illuminates the focus of my remarks today. Assad says, my aim is to explore a problem that remains generally obscured in the secular hostility to what is assumed to be religion. The problem with what can be called political religion is the politics that derives from the sovereign state and the religion that is conceived and practiced in response to it. And I think for thinking with, with and against Israeli theopolitics and a number of valences, this is the problem space that I would want to focus on today. So the particular forms of political religion that are so often confused and conflated with much broader, shifting, essentially contested, and amorphous religious and social fields. And I would intentionally open that up so that it becomes a claim that's with very fuzzy borders and boundaries. So in one of its stronger forms, and in the context of American support for Israel, the religion trap expresses itself clearly in the form of a total reduction of Judaism to the Israeli state project. 
This naive and often problematized <coughs> tendency has been, of course, widely criticized, including in rich historical and philosophical detail by Yakov in his book, which I highly recommend to you all, and he was kind enough to send over to me. Judith Butler, as Yolanda will discuss, attacks head-on this violent reductionism with her contrary proposal to sever Jewishness and Zionism altogether, to part ways once and for all. I think it's important to consider as a prelude to Yolanda's talk the discursive field in which Butler's proposal is situated and from which it emerges. This is a field which, due to its facile equation of Jewishness and Judaism, with particular interpretations of Zionism and Israeli state politics and policy, due to the religion trap, in other words, that is the trap, it has become normal in the US to equate anti-Zionist political and religious views with anti-Semitism, something that's come up numerous times in our informal discussions at this workshop. Butler's formula is a rejection, an outright slam of that equation, and in some ways, in rejecting so baldly and awkwardly and tragically as Yolanda, I think will explain more, may reinforce some of the problematic assumptions about Zionism, Judaism, Israel, and their interrelations that we want to talk about here. How did we get to a place where Butler takes the position she does? So I'm hoping that this, we will, in this way, open a space for Yolanda's talk, which will highlight the broader extra-Zionist, non-Jewish, political and theological fields in which concepts of Judaism, Zionism, and so on are and always have been embedded. How do we get to a place where Butler's parting of ways between Jewishness and Zionism became not only possible, but also for some necessary? And what are the alternatives? So before turning to Israel, though, I want to make a comparative move with the religion trap and talk briefly about how it operates in a different context, and that context is contemporary Malaysia. It's very important to my work to keep a comparative lens open at all times. I think it makes it possible to refract questions that we may want to ask about Israeli theopolitics through a wider lens that encompasses the theopolitics of the nation state in general, because I think we are talking about, if not universal, somehow generalizing tendencies, and I like to compare these cases. So in his new book that some of you may have had a look at, um, Constituting Religion, Tamar Mustafa writes about these two poles of state liberalism on the one hand and state interpretations of Islamization and Islamic law on the other. The trap, of course, in the Malaysian case, as in others that I'm asking us to think with, is the conflation of Islam in general, whatever that is, with specific forms of state-sanctioned Islam and specific construals of Islamic law and projects of Islamization in Malaysia today. Now, this conflation is so common, this collapse of Islam in general with what the state is interpreting as Islam, that it can be very difficult to see. After all, how many Islamization projects present themselves as departing from the real Islam? It would not actually really help your case. Mustafa avoids this trap, though, and he does this in a way that I think is helpful for us who want to think about religion and state in a different register, moving beyond the discursive limitations of the secularist imaginary, which I, which I think we're all at least sort of agreeing that we need to do. So Malaysia has two legal systems. They're kind of parallel. One is understood to be secular or civil, and the other as Islamic. And this binary, of course, does not resist, uh, reflect a sort of pre-existing reality. It actually helps to construct it. So what Mustafa does is he tells us the history of how this came to be, that we had this creation and entrenchment of a binary over several decades. And I think this is really helpful in terms of what was discussed this morning and trying to, what do we do next? Okay, we've deconstructed everything. How do we get down to specific contexts and how these categories are actually shaping lived legal and political realities? And I think here in Malaysia we have 
kind of an inescapable fact that what constitutes Islam and who participates in Islam are always uh, con deeply contested. And these are theological, legal, and political questions. They can never be fully disentangled. So any secularist claim to have disentangled them is just that. It's a political claim. And we can situate it in its context and not take it as face at face value. So the world we live in, of course, though, is one where state power tends to and often endorses one interpretation of, of religious tradition over another. This is also the case in the US. We have a particular understanding of disestablishment which, um, of course, also involves particular state endorsements of particular um, traditions, practices, institutions as religious. Um, the Malaysian system that Mustafa describes, though, continually breathes new life into this binary between Islam and secular liberalism. So the result is that secular religious difference has become kind of hardened, kind of ossified in the society there. And we have a secular religious divide defining and polarizing politics and society. And this polarization between what Mustafa calls rights and rights, R-I-G-H-T-S and R-I-T-E-S, this polarization between rights and rights is policing the boundaries of legal and religious possibility. And alternatives are getting cast below the threshold of legitimacy and legibility. And I think this happens in the Israeli case all of the time. And I think your book is an attempt to actually retrieve and to bring back those possibilities into our field of vision. So in Malaysia, as elsewhere, again, I want to refract and bump these cases against each other. NGOs, the media, advocacy groups, and even regular ordinary folks have all been swept up in this legal and discursive storm that is fueled by an either-or duality between what the state construes as Islam on the one hand and liberalism on the other. This has become like an either-or situation. What gets lost in this tsunami of litigation and popular mobilization is the distinction between Islam and projects of state Islamization. It's the religion trap. As uh, Anand Vivek Taneha recently argued on the imminent frame, Islam is a fluid set of ways of being Muslim that are both contingent and coherent. These, the, and this is now back to my words, can, it can be reduced to state law only with extraordinary interpretive license, power, and violence. And nowhere is this collapse of Islam and state Islamization more evident than in Malaysians' own understanding of Islamic law. So they have a very particular understanding of Islamic law that Mustafa describes as uh, a legal code that will yield one correct answer to any given question. And this, of course, is a complete change and a complete I mean, shift from previous understandings of Islamic law. So what I want to just give you one quote. He says, the finding, and this is a survey finding, that most lay Muslims understand Islamic law as a legal code yielding only one correct answer to any given question is a testament to how the modern state has left its imprint on legal consciousness. Whereas Islamic jurisprudence is diverse and fluid, it's understood by many Malaysians as singular and fixed. Implementation of a codified version of Islamic law through the Sharia courts is assumed to be a religious duty of the state. And indeed, it appears most Malaysians believe that the Sharia courts do apply God's law directly, unmediated by human agency. So now, if we believe his survey results, and everyone here is probably rightly skeptical of surveys, I know I am, um, they're always partial, they're always oversimplified. So if we believe it, though, this is a kind of capture of the Malaysian legal imaginary, and it runs deep, and it's very complex. So what we have is a disti the distinction between Islam and state projects of Islamization has crumbled, and not only for scholars, for public officials, or for judges, but for ordinary Malaysians, too. And I'm curious, and this is more of a question than a statement, 
about the extent to which this has also occurred in the case of contemporary Israeli theopolitics. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So anyway, what this means is that if you publicly criticize a legal initiative that is construed by the authorities as Islamic, many Malaysians will receive this as an attack on Islam in general, as a defense of liberalism. And you can see this leads to a culture war along the lines of what we have in the US. This means conventional readings of Article 3.1 of the Malaysian Constitution, which states Islam is the religion of the Federation, which emphasize its ceremonial and symbolic meaning are being not only pronounced unfaithful to the federal constitution, they are said to challenge Islam itself. So conversely, if one criticizes a law as liberal, as secular, or human rights-based, this is quickly categorized as being pro-Muslim. So this is like an either-or situation that has really taken hold. So um, there's, a, there's some examples of this we could talk about specific cases. I think I'll skip that over in, in the interest of time. I also want to bring up the question of race, which has not come up yet. Race is also part of the picture. This is also the case in Israel. The conflation of a state-centric, racialized, and ethnicized set of legal interpretations of Islam, with Islam in its entirety, if we can even talk about such a thing, haunts the Malaysian legal system. It renders certain forms of solidarity impossible, certain ways of being Muslim unimaginable, and certain understandings of Islam unthinkable. It's gotten worse as religion has become increasingly judicialized and politicized. So Mustafa shows us a way out of this impasse. He says that Anglo-Muslim law, as it's developed in Malaysia, is just simply not the full and exclusive embodiment of the Islamic legal tradition. Yaakov's book does that to some extent um, with the various traditions of uh, Judaism and Jewishness that flowed into and fed and contradicted and interacted with contemporary forms of Zionism. Um, so I see them as complementary. At the same time, liberal secularism, and this goes back to this morning's conversation, is not an unchanging monolith that exists outside of particular political and legal contexts. So neither these, neither the, neither Islam nor liberalism can be said to exist as autonomous, pure, or coherent formations. I think that that's a pretty important takeaway. So um, I have another story I'd love to tell about counter-revolutionary Egypt and my recent um, trip down the Nile, which was extremely enlightening in a lot of ways. Um, but I'm going to skip over that in, in the interest of time. Um, and just go um, say a few words about uh, some of the some of the uh, what's going on in the U.S. Um, but first of all, let me just say that if we understand with Taneha that part of our job as scholars and as commentators is to challenge and expand, establish ideas of what constitutes and who participates in the discursive traditions that we're studying, which I think it is. I think that that is part of the challenge that we take on board when we problematize and contextualize the religious secular binary, is that we then need to question how people who depict themselves as speaking for a particular tradition and others as not, how they came to have that authority. This is part of the job we have. Um, if we want to do that, then we also have to do this for other political theological traditions and not only for Islam. I don't know about you guys, but I am tired of Islam being the kind of go-to example of how, you know, if we're going to talk religion, we're going to talk about Islam. So that's one of the reasons I'm here is because I appreciate the fact that you're putting the spotlight on Israel. So if we fail to reckon with this religion trap, then there's this temptation to collapse Islam into whatever project of Islamization is prominent, might be Saudi, might be whatever. Christianity gets collapsed into, a, in the US case, a project of Christian nationalism. Or, as the debate rages, and here I'll talk about Israel, her American support for Israel, Judaism gets collapsed with a particular project of Zionism. And that temptation is, in many cases, irresistible. We've seen it in Malaysia. We're seeing it now in the Israeli-American relationship. 
So I'm just going to say a few words about that by a way of segging to um, Yolanda's uh, contribution. And I think that one thing we've seen, and of course everyone here knows that criticizing a Jewish state is not anti-Semitic. Um, but in the U.S., there has been a remarkable and pronounced tendency to collapse the, the distinction between a tradition, on the one hand, which we may or may not call a religious tradition, I don't think I would, after having read your book, um, and its state-sponsored and always partial and incomplete and contested realization, uh, on the other hand. So in the Israeli case, of course, Judaism gets reduced to state-sponsored political Zionism, and criticism of the latter is depicted as an attack on the former. So if, as Israel's most impassioned American defenders insist, it is by definition anti-Semitic to criticize Israel because Israel embodies the Jewish people, then any criticism of it is forcibly, of the state, is forcibly anti-Semitic. So the Israeli state, of course, does a lot to support that narrative and a lot of active work on American campuses that I've experienced firsthand. They're, they have created this legal and sociological reality, reproducing a discriminatory religio-national hierarchy, which then inoculates itself against criticism with the argument that it is anti-Semitic to acknowledge that hierarchy because it dismisses the Jewish, Jewish people's right to self-determination. That's the argument that we get. So we could talk here a little bit about the new basic law. I'm hoping that that comes up, which is called Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people. Um, I think that this, is, this law is suggestive of Israel's attempt to capture the field of possibility of Jewish statehood. Um, Daryl Lee argued in a recent review that the idea that the basic law is a surprise or a perversion of the Zionist project, as some have suggested, is questionable. Lee criticizes what he calls the agonized hand-wringing of this balancing model. He writes, Israeli jurists and legal scholars circulate to and from Europe and the Anglophone settler colonies to engage with interlocutors, largely white, through a dense web of professional connections, LLM and doctoral programs, conferences and workshops, visiting faculty appointments, clerkships. Israel-Palestine is a particularly poignant case of this problem as a glaring example of how the Global South and Global North can unfold in the same space and not by accident. The result is a parochial cosmopolitanism, a kind of monoracial echo chamber that can only see the nation-state law as a betrayal of Israel's promise rather than a sadly predictable fulfillment of it. This is what I think Judith Butler is reacting against. Butler aside, in the US, we have limited space for dissent from the official consensus around unequivocal support for Israel. Some would say, as and I did in a recent op-ed, that there's no room for Judaism. Mustafa's description of the collapse of a distinction between Islam and projects of state Islamization in Malaysia then finds its parallel in US debates over Israel. And I think this is to, it's important to see this as one way of reckoning with unfounded charges of anti-Semitism because in, it's not only Israel. This is something that is inherent and arguably in the DNA of the modern state, right? So there's also a sense in which US, in the US, anti-Semitism has been weaponized as a means of silencing political and theological critique. So the space for debate on Israel is constricted like almost no other in the, in the US politics. And I think it's important to come to terms fully with the reasons for this constriction. I want to conclude with an anecdote that illustrates one of them and also segs into what I think Yolanda will be speaking to us about. Last week I was reading grad student papers all week for my <clears throat> class on religion, race, and politics and imperial and global perspective. It was a really fun class. And one of the students wrote, is writing her dissertation on American Christian interactions with the Holy Land both real and imagined. So she's looking at tourism and she's looking at pilgrimage to the quote, real holy land. And she's also looking at all of the romanticized and commercialized 
replicas of the Holy Land that are located in the United States, which some of you may know about. This is something that is absolutely fascinating. Um, an example is the Holy Land Experience theme park in the Orlando. Has anyone heard of it? Holy Land Experience. Theme park. Theme park. No? <laughs> You've heard of it. Okay. So I read this paper. I was blown away. And I, of course, could not resist visiting the Holy Land Experience website and especially the shopping section because I love to shop. So for those of you who haven't yet explored the website, you won't be surprised to hear that when I clicked on Judaica to see what would be for sale, the first thing was a big Israeli flag. Yeah, of course. Okay, so that gives you something to think about. In the American imagination, and this for me includes the commercial evangelical Christian imagination, which is in some ways coterminous with the American imagination as a whole. We are all evangelicals. Smalley. There is literally no room for the possibility that Judaism and Israel are not the same thing. This is cultivated actively through religio-commercial enterprises like the Holy Land Experience, which create the conditions of possibility for the religion trap, for unconditional support for American support for Israel and Saudi Arabia, despite everything. Speaking of evangelicals and U.S. politics, another challenging aspect of this situation involves the risk of unwittingly exculpating Christian Zionists, non-Jewish Europeans, and other parties from responsibility for what Israel has been and is becoming. So I want to turn now to Yolanda to think about the possibility and the perils of critique in such an environment. Thanks. I hope I didn't go too long. Uh, sorry for distracting you with my Coca-Cola <laughs> problem uh, before. Thanks a lot, uh, Beth. It goes with the American um, evangelical <laughs> Um, you know, yeah, I was also a little bit commercial. afraid of having yeah. the wrong, but it's still, no, well, let's not talk about it. But, um, <coughs> um, yeah, um, thank you, Jakob, for the... Thank you for coming. Uh, yeah, and um, we had been asked to prepare a dialogue, but as you see, it's still difficult not to prepare a little paper uh, still. So um, I am trying to keep a little bit short, so you have some questions to ask uh, <laughs> in between. Um, we were talking about uh, this morning's discussion uh, before already, and as Beth uh, said, like we sort of um, um, we we uh, we have been talking about the difficulty of religion as a category and its political and ide ideological dim dimensions for a long time already, and it's time to take a next uh, step in many ways. Um, and I would like to, I was just before the break, I was, we were, dis of, uh, during the break, we were discussing with uh, um, uh, Lina and Rose, and um, uh, we were discussing, uh, like, why is this so important? And you were also hinting at this. And um, I was wondering to say two things about that. Like, um, um, there's a nice piece from uh, Brian Kluge about the use of the concept of Islamophobia, and then he comes up with a, with Gesteinian perspective, and he says, like, uh, we know that these categories are constructed and that they have their ideological uses, but still they are being used in specific contexts, and you have to look at those contexts, and there they can have a legitimacy, or at least they cannot be replaced so easily. And also, if you look at the use of all those concepts, then you can see that very often there's something like family resemblances. So it's not, they, they are contingent and they, they are uh, problematic, but there are also like, you can look at the genealogies and then see how they develop in which political context, and it can learn us a lot. So that's also why it's important to really look at 
the uses of the concepts uh, in specific contexts and not just remain at the at, at, at remain circling around their constructedness mm -hmm. so um, and the se second thing I would like to, to and that was what we were talking about like I'm um, so my appointment as a Socrates professor is a, it's a, it's a bit strange appointment. It's a, it's a like we have something like special professorships in the Netherlands, and originally th these are professorships which are uh, financed and also supported by specific religious organizations. Mm -hmm. So we have the Radboud professorship for Catholic studies and uh, like the Socrates professorship for uh, uh, so. As I came as like a real academic philosopher, having done work on secularism in France, they asked me to, to apply to be a professor of humanism. So I, I, I consented and I, I was really, it, it's really nice and because humanism now I'm also, good. sorry? Humanism is good. Well, it has its problems. <laughs> but um, uh, so, but uh, anyway, so I, I really liked the appointment, but it's, it's also strange because now I'm at a originally Protestant university and there I'm teaching in the religious studies or theology department, but they have a policy of having religious diversity studies. And now I'm there as a humanist <laughs> in the religion, as, as, as a representative of one of the religious <laughs> pillars. So it's, uh, but it's, so that, that that's, that's it, it, it has all these like contingent uh, aspects. But um, one of the things I was asked to do, for example, is uh, to look at, um, the documents and the questions that the IND, and that's the Dutch immigration organization, that they use to assess whether people who claim they, uh, to have fled from uh, uh, mostly Muslim countries, that they who claim they are, uh, have been flying as atheists and that they are persecuted for reasons, for religious reasons, like how do you assess whether this is the true story? So, and then they asked me to look at that and I found it very, like, challenging should I do that or not how do I do I get involved in this or not it's it's I, 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 I oppose all those policies so and and all those kinds of questionnaires whether it's about homosexuality or about religious uh, it's so complicated but still if I don't do it maybe someone else with less scholarly views may get the to do it so I did look at it and then the first question they ask the people who fled is like, when did you convert to atheism? <laughs> <laughs> so I told them, well, this is this is a concept with the history. <laughs> Maybe you look at it. So, um, so that's where it gets so complicated. You can say, okay, well, religion is constructed, convert all those concepts have their histories, but still, then what do you do in a practical situation like that? Uh, can you can you say something about it? What does it help to know all these historical vicissitudes? Where do you direct people then? Uh, so that's the kind of questions I would really like to be able to deal with, but it's still very difficult. Yeah. So <coughs> now. Um, Beth already told me that I uh, already told you that I was trying going to try to react to some things in uh, Judith Butler's book because I've been working on an article about it uh, on the request of some uh, uh, people working on a special issue about it and I would like to share this with you because this is a very good um, um, public also but I'm very insecure about it and I want to um, give some uh, introduction first so that you know where I come from. Um, so I've been working a lot on uh, what the sociologist Marcus Dressler has called 
religio-secularism, and it's more or less what we've been talking about here, but he, uh, I, I, what I like about it is the idea that we have to talk, that we have to maybe um, um, step aside a little bit more than we even did uh, yet, uh, outside of the, like, wh what you could call the religious-secular paradigm, in the sense that um, they are being used as epistemological categories, to understand social conflict concerning religion or cultural difference in a very broad sense, and as relatively privileged categories in comparison to conceptualizations more focused on culture, economy, politics, migration, a history of coloniality, race, and the articulations between all of them. And um, I think religious secularism has different layers. We need to distinguish them. So we can talk about like the history of secularism and the history of like using religion as a more or less reified concept, and we can have a reflection on that. But there's other, uh, and then for example, what we have oft often been doing is talking about how this has stimulated understanding religion from a Protestant or secular assumptions with their colonial orientalizing dimensions. That's what we've been talking about this morning. But I think there's another dimension to religious secularism, which is that the critique of this history is still being held very much in terms of religion and secularism itself. And that's my worry a little bit with, for example, the work of Sabah Mahmoud and Tala Asa, that it remains, like when we're talking about post-secular, it remains very much in terms of that the contending terms are still religion and secularity. And I think we need to in insert more terms to the debate to get it uh, in a better place. And that's where, for example, I would think that coloniality, race, economy are very important to have them on the same level than the secular religious terms. So that's, that's one thing I found important. And m maybe also in relation to um, um, what we were talking about in terms of the um, the relation between liberalism, secularism, and um, and uh, the nation state. Um, what uh, what I would think also in the European context, I can explain this more later, but is important is that. Um, there have also been versions of liberalism and of liberal democracy which have tried to um, think beyond the uh, concepts of religion and secularism as much as possible. So it's important not to conflate liberalism and secularism too much. That, uh, of course, they're uh, very much interrelated, but there are versions of liberal uh, multiculturalism which have tried to, um, to accommodate uh, um, religion and religious tradition and religious practices much more than we tend to see when we look at, uh, at uh, just with the lens of critique of secularism and it makes it impossible to see different versions of liberalism also and also different possibilities of accommodation of different religious traditions in the European context and I think this is important to remember also because in the 1980s, 1990s there were from within like lighter versions of liberal democracy. There were uh, inventions of all kinds of tolerating and tolerance practices, not, uh, and, and, and I mean tolerance in a very broad sense, um, that we, uh, sh uh, sorry, versions of pluralism that we shouldn't forget as options. So now if we reconstruct uh, the role of secularism in having certain conceptions of the nation state, we may also 
overlook options within this, these traditions. It, uh, I'm a little bit vague, sorry. Um, I mean, um, um, can I interject here and maybe ask yeah. a question regarding this? Because yeah. this is something that uh, I mean comes up from both of your uh, comments, and I think maybe it would be a way to, uh, you know, to think a bit more uh, down to the point. Is there a way to, uh, when it comes to liberalism and multiculturalism and religious tolerance or uh, tolerance of religious diversity and so forth and so forth, uh, so on and so forth, is there a way to think of a multicultural setting without, a liberal multicultural setting without necessarily forcing the, the cultural diversity into these uh, uh, Christian categories, what uh, hmm. uh, Beth no. referred to as no. the collapsing of everything into uh, I already religion. answered, no. <laughs> That's it, no. <laughs> There's no way. Uh, so, you know, but we can you might disagree, yeah. so. Yeah. No, no but I, I, yeah. um, I, um, I <laughs> tend to agree as well. Yes. But um, uh, there's different, um, I, I would say there's different gradations of how bad it is to be inserted into those categories. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's what I mean, that there are options within like European, yes. like if we now think again that the, the nation state is something very uh, nationalistic by nature and that it's, it's, it's uh, so in a certain sense we say the populists are right in their conception of the nation state as something very monolithic, mm -hmm. which cannot be plural, uh, pluralistic, which can only be well, either nationalist or maybe Christian nationalist or maybe wi uh, whiteness oriented. Yeah. It's also a way of, of, uh, of, of agreeing with that kind of discourse and thinking we need something radically different. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, I think, um, theoretically, we have to think about that very much and also step outside religious secularism and the Christian kind of backgrounds of it mm -hmm. and the uh, European Christian, like uh, colonial kinds of backgrounds of it. But it remains important to see that there are different, version of, uh, different versions of this kind of uh, history and that we can have more and less acceptable versions and that in the 1990s and early 2000s, in all kinds sure. of multicultural theories, there were options for accommodation and even uh, uh, um, uh, conviviality or yes. other concepts that yes. we shouldn't forget about. Yes. So we have to do both. Like, remember, like there were better, much better options yeah. within the, uh, the, the, like the, s the secular religious framework than we tend to think of now. Oh. And we have to theoretically uh, rethink the whole picture, uh, taking into account much more how it's always um, uh, has this like Christian civilizational background, mm -hmm. which is uh, uh, very problematic. Yes. So, but I think right. we should do both. Right. Beth, can you elaborate on your no? Yes. The notion of religious diversity is a liberal secular concept. I don't think we can get out of that. It presumes that there is something called religion that can be segregated from other areas of human life. And this is part of what we're, I understand the gesture that we got to this morning is that that is a problematic and artificial separation and segregation. And that move is itself a secularist move, which is something that, um, you know, the sort of Assadians have been arguing for a long time. And so if you, if you want to acknowledge that the notion of religious diversity is always and already a problematic notion because of, it is a secularist claim that segregates religion from the secular and then defines it. 
then you can't really work with that concept. Mm -hmm. And you have to somehow find other vocabularies, and this is something that I heard you saying a little bit earlier, other terms, other categories of analysis, other modes of relationality, of sociality, um, other kinds of legal institutions, political institutions, in, that do not depend on the difference that religion makes. Can you be more concrete, like give so, examples of what would be? So, um, well, for example, um, there would be no projects to promote moderate Muslims and moderate Islam. There would be no such thing, because there is no such thing. And the last thing we need is the U.S. government shopping for moderate Muslims and then promoting them politically, which is the kiss of death anyway, so a lot of them don't want that promotion. So politically, it's very problematic. But this idea that there is something out there that can be identified as moderate Islam yes. is has generated, as I argue in Beyond Religious Freedom, an enormous religio-industrial complex, yeah. which a lot of people have staked their careers on. It's not just like a one-time thing. It's their entire career. And they're earning their money either analyzing these people or doing the theological analysis of the Quran to figure out which part of it is is causing violence and which part of it is causing moderation. And there's a big industry and there's a lot of famous people and this is not only the right, this is the left as well. In fact, it's everybody in the US. I mean, it's like a, it's a huge cottage industry. Um, and there's a lot of room for academics to get involved too. And this entire project is fatally flawed as far as I'm concerned. And if you want to read a really cool book that helps to explain why. There's an edited volume. I'm not in it, and I have nothing to do with it, so it's actually not an ad. It's called After Pluralism, Reimagining Religious Engagement. And it's a volume that was edited by Courtney Bender and Pamela Klassen quite a number of years ago. And it is excellent, and it problematizes exactly, in the introduction, which is like 15, 20 pages long, why the concept of pluralism, which is quite similar and is very much interrelated with the concept of religious diversity, religious diversity, religious pluralism are even sometimes used interchangeably. Yes. Um, why this concept is so problematic yeah. and why we need to think outside of these boxes that we're yes. being forced into yeah. by a received tradition of basically political, yes. uh, political socialization into secularism yeah. and, and, yeah. and secularist understandings of religion that, have, that we are so reliant on, they've yes. taken hold so strongly in our collective political and social imaginaries that we cannot think otherwise. And I think the best and the brightest people in this field are people who are thinking otherwise and offering these alternative vocabularies for thinking about human social life outside of these uh, very limited rubrics. Is that specific enough? Yeah, it is. Thank you. Yolanda, can you... not done. So. You want more? She was still... Yeah, so, but, but you want to just... Uh, uh, answer the same challenge or give some concrete examples of what would be within the religious uh, secular uh, discourse a more uh, accommodating uh, framework which is not assimilationist um, yeah I think um, well let me just to connect to what you were saying in, in, uh, I, I, in an ideal world I very much agree, and I also think this is one of the the pillar, the, 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 the feet of the project that we have to go on, that to invent new vocabularies. Mm -hmm. But uh, connected to your question this morning, like we have all kinds of groups and people who understand themselves in these terms, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. just not enough to say uh, mm -hmm. it, the, the terms are very problematic, and mm -hmm. and it's also it's not the concepts that create the power relations. It's the concepts that give them some uh, shape, 
but these uh, the the power relations are there and they could have taken shape maybe in other, other concepts as well so of it's of not course. just a matter of correcting the concepts of course and and so the the, the, the so how to address the power relations there i think um uh it's it's well it's very important to 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 see how they work but also to see that for example pluralism and like divide and rule that's of course it's it's uh, it's uh, religious pluralism is one way to divide but there are other ways, and it's about the invention of these ways. So that's that's what I would like to. Uh, so, but I think um, if um, in the in the European context, it's just I think there's um, it's good to remember the like the the, the, um, uh, the theories of multiculturalism and of like um, uh, multicultural jurisdictions, how they could work, mm -hmm. how. Um, uh, um, um, how there could be a, a, a complexity taking into account the differences between traditions and how they would fit or not fit within certain categories that um, I think a lot of good work could be done there mm -hmm. uh, even within the religious secular uh, 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 paradigm yes. and we like in the I think the blackening of, I, I don't know if, if I use the correct word, but I mean the, uh, s s um, um, the, the critique of multicultural options has come from the right, but yes. also from the left. Yes, yes. And um, it has been so radical that some of the options that were like working in practice, not only in England, but for example, also in France, they have sort of like been wiped out as, as, as possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, both from the radical left uh, critique and from the right. And I think in, in practical ways, these options were uh, not so bad mm -hmm. after all, yeah. uh, if you compare it to what we have now, yeah. where we have this like increasing nationalist interpretations yes. of the nations and secularist interpretations of the nation state yes. and, uh, um, uh, 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 and, and polarization. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, that's what I would, but yes. it wasn't, it, in, in fact, it was just a side remark, <laughs> and I, <laughs> well, I didn't want to make such a big point of it, um, because I think one. Well, my second step would be um, like, what does religious secularism hide from view? And then we have talked about part of it already, like the uh, racial, colonial, and etc. Uh, dimensions that I, I think we should stop talking so much in terms of religion and secularism and insert the other categories in on the same level but something else and something also important and you also talked about it already is um i think we have to see more uh, the how relational and like the the the, uh, the uh, professor this morning was talking about cultural semantics or cultural semiotics like how relational the identities of the different groups are and how much uh, semantics plays and semiotics plays a role in there. So we have to take a more cultural analytical perspective than just look at specific categories. And there um, I would have wanted to show a few quotes. Uh, I think we can learn there uh, very much from uh, work that has been done on the position of the Jews in Europe before the Second World War. Um, because there was so much consciousness of how relational the um, and the, the mirroring 
kind of identities and how this worked. So for example, there's a quote from Miao Yofil, which I like. It's a bit complicated, but I can le read it for you. And he says, like, uh, Jews, so uh, the, in the pre-war uh, context, Jews provided Europeans with a mirror, a crooked, passion-laden mirror, in which to see a reflection of their own identity problems. The Jewish problem was basically a European problem that is not only a problem for Europe, but a reflection of Europe's own problem with itself, of how in an age of rapid transformation, Europeans were understanding their own identity, future and meaning of life. So it's a fully relational kind of uh, um, a process of meaning making. And um, another one from Hannah Arendt, and she makes it a little bit harsh, but then still very clear. Whether the Jews are a religion or a nation, a people or a race, a state or a tribe, depends on the special opinion non-Jews, in whose midst Jews live, have about themselves. But it certainly has no connection whatever with any germinal knowledge about the Jews. As the people of Europe became nations, the Jews became a nation within a nation. As the Germans began to see in the state something more than their political representation, that is, as their fundamental essence, the Jews became a state within a state. And since the end of the last century, when the Germans transformed themselves into Aryans, we have been wandering through the world as Semites. So that's where the, um, the relationality of the categories become really important. And that's also something which is not so visible from this religious, religious secular paradigm. That's, that's something that I would like to bring up. And then, in my, so in my book, I worked very much on uh, the, like how uh, Marcel Proust um, uses all kinds of metaphors to study the, this mirroring kind of questions. So you, then you can really look at literature and what it does, like how, how does this work in the imagination, but we can't do this now. And, but this, this is uh, as an introduction to, to what I would, was working on when studying uh, Judith Butler's book, uh, Parting Ways, Jewishness and the Critique of Zionism. But maybe you, we can first, and then... Uh, I think we... Uh, I think it's time of maybe to open it up to you know other people to question that. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and maybe through this you'll go through uh, Judith Butler. Uh, anyone want to comment and question right now or? Huh? Well, I'm going to take the. I mean, I have. Maybe, uh, I want to talk about. Uh, uh, the collapsing again, or the restriction of the discourse through a specific uh, uh, tradition which hides behind the state. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, when it comes to different modes of culture, multiculturalism or diversity, the only question that is not asked is sovereignty. Can the sovereign change uh, uh, its, its shape? And the, the, the answer is obviously never asked, so we can always ask how people correspond within it. Uh, one of the interesting uh, um, phenomena in this regard is how, um, and this is uh, uh, already uh, predicted in uh, Beth's remarks, uh, Islam, Judaism, whatever we p manufacture and produce as a, as a set meaning, is uh, starting to understand itself through American Christian or evangelical mm -hmm. concepts. So just to give a, an almost, almost obvious example, uh, there obviously are a rabbinical or traditional understanding of uh, uh, of abortion, but it has never been a political issue. 
through a religious political issue right. until the Americans make it one and then yeah. the Israelis adopt it. So all of a sudden it becomes a new demarca line of demarcation. So my question would be again along these lines, can you maybe comment a little bit about how we can indeed have this conversation wi without not just essentializing Islam and Judaism and so forth, but without forcing or I would say po positively, while listening to these traditions own ways of understanding themselves? Well, yeah, I think that one thing we need to always ask, and this is what the Taneha quote that I, that I read a couple of times, is we need to ask who is speaking on behalf of the tradition. Yeah. And that's not to say we shouldn't listen to that representative, whoever he or she is, yeah. but it is to say that we should always um, think about, and, and this goes for other, you know, politics of representation in general, oh. right? Um, so we yeah. need to ask who's speaking on behalf of that tradition and understand yeah. how they're situated in a particular set of institutional or state hierarchies that gives them the authority to represent. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one way to get at this. I don't think that, um, I mean, this is this is something we were discussing earlier because this question of, I mean, this comes back for at least for many academics to a question of religious literacy and religious education. So yes. how do we get enough different views from each tradition to represent a, a full and accurate, and, and I think that this falls back into this sort of secularist trap that I'm yes. trying to diagnose here, which yes. is to say that, that there is such a thing as, this, as these world religious traditions, and if we could just get our the right representatives. Yes. Um, I'll give you an example. So uh, when I was writing Beyond Religious Freedom, I went and hung around with religious freedom advocates because they were my ethnographic object. So I went to their meetings and to the advocacy groups meetings and um, to try to understand what, was, what their worldview was and how they understood themselves in relation to the politics of religious freedom. One of the main things that they would always say to me is, well, would you, they knew I was unhappy with it because I wouldn't join the movement. Would you be happy, Beth, if we had a Hindu on the international the commission for U.S. Commission for International Religious Freedom, USERF? Because then, you know, we would have a representative. Then you can't complain because there's a representative of each tradition. And what if she was even a woman? Then would you be happy? And this is part of this is sort of part of this mindset that if we could just it's I call it religious freedom 2.0 in a snarky way. Mm -hmm. If we could just make it better. If we could just like turn it up to 11, for those of yes. you who are old enough to remember that movie, then we, yes. it would be okay, yeah. right? And I'm saying no, it's, the problem is much bigger than that. It is the entire epistemolo epistemology, and you guys, I mean, preaching to the converted here, literally, yeah. but we have to find different ways of, of understanding what we're talking about when we think we're talking about religion. Yeah. And I think part of that is to get very close to the ground and I mean, the example I gave about looking at the Holy Land Experience website and going to the Judaica shopping section and seeing the Israeli flag, like right there, it's very material, it's very real. Yes. It allows us to see how Americans are politically socialized to get to the place where they actually believe wholeheartedly that to be against Israeli policy is to be an anti-Semite, it is to be a Nazi. How do you get to that place? Well, that's a long distance to travel, right? Yeah, because yeah. There, is a, there are a lot of opportunities to take other paths and roads. But that is a cultural, commercial, capitalist, political and social socialization process that, that, again, in order to see it, you do have to get pretty close to the ground. You have to look at the Holy Land Experience website. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's going 
and finding those examples that help us to sort of to jar us out of the yes. assumptions that we're so comfortable sitting yes. in. And so that we stop looking around for the Hindu to put on the commission and we start saying, what, why do we have this commission? And as you know, if you've read my stuff, I have a big public op-ed that says that we need to abolish it. So it's not like a secret what my position is, but I'll tell you that they did try to put me on it too because the Dems want to abolish it too. So now that I'm over religious freedom and I don't have to work in this field anymore, I can tell all of the dirty secrets of the religious freedom field. It's very, very deeply hotly politicized. Mm -hmm. And it's very, um, I think, important to sort of be able to pull back and say, what is this project doing? Yeah. In whose name is it bringing freedom? I mean, it's the new, it's the new civilizing discourse, yes. right? I mean, clearly, it's extremely deeply racialized. Yes. It's gendered. Yes. It has got, I mean, I appreciate what Yolanda was saying about bringing these other lenses, um, I think for your word though, uh, to bear on these contemporary events. But I do think we need to be pretty close to the ground in order yeah. to rethink yeah. our assumptions on this. Yeah. Because it's otherwise it just becomes a trafficking in abstractions. And is there an other religious uh, group which is so clearly identified with one state? Like Hindu, is it identified with India or uh, I'd like? Sorry, you mean in the religious freedom world? Yes, that because you said there's this oh. immediate identification with the state of Israel, and is ah, that is there I an understand. other uh, example of where yes. a religious group would be identified so much with one? Well, so <coughs> I mean, in in the U.S., I mean, the good Muslim, bad Muslim. Mandani, which and I also picked it up because I think it's good religion, bad religion in general. That's what structures. That's the lecture that I give now on the circuit is good religion, bad religion because I think it's how people understand religion today. But um, I think that in 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 the U.S. terms and in the religion freedom discourse, um, good religion or good Islam is associated with countries that keep their Muslims in check, and that's what actually I was going to talk about in terms of Egypt and CC today, um, and the Saudis, and bad Islam is those countries where Muslims run the place and have free reign to do whatever they want and create theocracy like in Iran. Mm -hmm. And that is the like distorted, crazy world that um, you know American foreign policy operates in. So I think in terms of Islam, it's divided into good and bad. In terms of Judaism, it's Israel. And if you want to talk about other traditions, if you want to talk about Hinduism, for example, I don't think that there's enough um, even basic understanding of what, where, where these people are or what they're up to. I don't think most Americans have any idea what's going on with Hinduism. The only people who do are the people who are protesting yoga in the American public schools as an, a violation of the Establishment Clause because they are saying that they are, their children are being secretly indoctrinated into Hinduism via <laughs> yoga, which is actually a fabulous, I teach this case, it's a, it's a legal case in Encinitas, California, and it's a fabulous taste, teach, uh, case to teach because the students are, I mean, they're like, wait a minute, well, is, it, is yoga a religion? And there's actually, you know, it, it, it shows up the impoverished kind yeah. of edges and the, the ragged edges of the category yeah. and the ways in which it doesn't actually encapsulate the complex realities that it pretends to represent. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. with the exception of those people, I don't think anyone knows what's going on with Hinduism, but they did want, but they did have this naive sense that if they put a Hindu on the on the commission that it would then be religiously diverse and they and what I'm read as as a critic of this work I'm read as uh, someone who just wants more diversity 
there's not enough diversity, we need more diversity. And I think that that is actually, that misses the bigger problem mm -hmm. that we're trying to deal with, um, which is just this whole entire epistemology of secular religious. So one of the rhetorical tools that I'm sure is thrown at you, and I'm going to throw it just for the sake of the discourse, is are you willing to give up on all of your uh, hard-fought uh, and acquired liberties? <laughs> My liberties? Yes. What liberties? Um, oh, I'm going to force you to wear a burqa now. <laughs> or force me to take it off, right? Yes. Um, I don't know. So... No. So this is, this is the context of the... Of, of I'm the not willing to give up my yeah, the, liberties, but I don't usually talk about liberties. I guess I, I'm... I'm no, so if we are... I mean, do I want to get rid we're of We're challenging liberalism, right? We are challenging liberalism now. We are challenging the framework within religious diversity is discussed, which I'm is the I'm challenging liberal constructs of religion. Yes. So are you challenging liberalism as a whole? Liberalism as a whole, it depends what you mean by liberalism. There are certain aspects of it that, that I'm definitely sympathetic toward. But again, this goes back to something, um, the legislator role um, that you brought up, Bill. You said you're not a, no, was it you or was it Tim? Yeah. Tim, I can't see you. Yeah. You said you weren't a legislator um, and that, you know, you're a critic, not a legislator. And I think, I feel that way too. I don't feel like I'm in the business of legislating how, uh, you know, which particular school of thought people need to affiliate themselves yes. with. I find yeah. that not that yes. interesting. Yeah. So no, I'm not going to say that I'm against liberalism, but I also feel like yeah. that's just that's trafficking in the abstractions. I know, and like, this is what happens with political philosophers who deal with these questions. Who usually right. ask these questions, and then they get trapped in this imagination. Yes. But so maybe you'll land more more specifically when it comes to your notions of maybe again, if you, if we if we do legislate and we think constructively of what would be a more well a better multicultural setting. Yeah. Uh, how do we, the, the, the obvious question that is asked in this context is how do we balance the, the, well, the acknowledgement of certain traditions' right to be expressed with, let's say, individual liberties, right? I mean, I think from the 1980s and well, surely in the 1990s, the question would be, so what do we do with the tribe uh, whose tradition demands the subjugation of women, for example? Can we allow that? All these, uh, again, political, philosophical, analytical questions. Can you maybe address this in a, in a more constructive way than my deliberating question? <laughs> well, it's a, I think it's an important uh, question. And uh, I was also thinking it was maybe linked to what um, Bill was talking about this morning when, we were talk when you were telling about the, um, the uh, use of the category of religion uh, with uh, uh, Pueblo Indian. Pueblo yeah, and then you told about um, how um, the category was invented for them, they didn't have it. It uh, gave them some uh, 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 space that otherwise they wouldn't have had. Uh, but then it gave also individuals within the community the space to withdraw and to say, well, it's my right not to do it. And then I was thinking and asking myself, and do you have any normative evaluation of that? Because it's an important question. If you don't, that's well, you, you can remain entirely uh, neutral, but you can also say, well, there's an ambivalence to it and not just be nostalgic about uh, when uh, these rights weren't there. And I would say it's ambivalent. And I, I, I was also reminded of a discussion among anthropologists that uh, a few years ago that I had uh, in, uh, in, in the entire upper north of uh, Europe in, uh, in Tromsø, and it was about um, 
um, uh, research uh, one of them had done in uh, on an, uh, a South American island where the um, the concept of freedom of religion came up very much uh, with the whole American package and also with the advent of Christianity and with conversion and uh, like it's a whole it's the whole um, but then I, I think there was some consensus among them like there is an ambivalence to this whole uh, it's not you cannot say it's good or bad. And um, that's also like, would you be willing to give up uh, the uh, the liberties that are there under religious uh, 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 freedom of belief? Yes. You can also say, well, we have to understand better what it would mean in different contexts, yes. but it's still an important concept. Mm -hmm. And I, especially, I think that's what I meant with the, like the multiculturalism too. Um, like in the European context, it's one of the ways we have in the legal system, some leeway for different groups and also for different traditions. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it, it wouldn't be wise to give it up before we have this other language. Uh -huh. That's my idea. And um, uh, so that's the that's the ambivalence. And just be critical about it. That's that's important. Like, what does it hide from view? Where does it doesn't it do the work? That's very important. But not to just bash it too much. That's 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 what I would uh, uh, think. Also in the legal system, it's uh, like we were talking about that as well. Like if you talk with the judges or with people who have to um, to use the category uh, uh, in a, in a legal system, then you cannot do with just saying it's a very problematic category and it. Uh, and and it, it, you have to do something with it, yes. and that's where where. But to invent this other language and to say what are the problems um, is very important. But um, yeah. Yeah, right. So that's that yeah. would be my. Uh, so I want to go to I mean actually to go to Butler, but through I mean through a segue of the the Malaysian and the, maybe the Egyptian or you know other Muslim cases. I'm thinking uh, specifically about uh, Wild Halak's book, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Impossible The Impossible State. state. Yeah. Where the argument is made, I think it's again, it should be preaching mm. to the converted in our case that uh, and maybe not everybody. Well, is not everybody. So the, the argument being that uh, if we consider authentically and truthfully what uh, uh, Muslim traditions tell us about governance, we see that it is simply incompatible with uh, the modern s notion of sovereignty. So to uh, designate a certain state, uh, an Islamic state, is simply an, uh, an oxymoron because the notion of the modern state, as we understand it today, and the notion of Islamic, as uh, he would say, emerges out of uh, the traditions of, uh, of Muslim law, of Sharia, whatever, uh, are simply too fundamentally incompatible. And then an interesting question that emerges out of it is that what happens when it is nevertheless done? So when a state calls itself uh, an Islamic Republic of Iran, or uh, when Israel identifies as a Jewish state to, to certain degrees. Um, I haven't read Mustafa's book and I know that I should. Uh, what happens uh, in other cases? Can you maybe think about this nationalization of tradition? Yeah, I think what happens is this trap, this inevitable, ineluctable, and the judges are in this position, as Yolanda was just saying, reduction, yes. collapse, yes. Um, flattening yes. of what yes. of what is kind of impossible to, to even encompass. Yes set of traditions, histories, practice, yeah. institutions, etc., yeah. which we may or may not want to classify as religious. To me, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's, 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 it's immaterial. Yeah. But nonetheless, they get collapsed into a particular and authoritative state. So where is resistance coming from? And this is, this is, this is, I mean, this is what's interesting. I mean, there's a, 
I think that there are different answers to that question. Some people would say, including Halak, that this is a sort of the violence of modern sovereignty and the yeah. modern nation state. Mm -hmm. and, in that, and that's the sense in which I think for him, Sharia is inherently, definitionally, ontologically incapable of being assimilated into the modern state project, that it does so much damage to what Sharia was as a living set of practices, yeah. that it cannot be encapsulated or encompassed by the modern state mm -hmm. without changing it to such an extent or transforming it to such a degree that it's no longer recognizable as Sharia. It's something else. Yes. And it's not a pretty something else, in yes. his view. Yes. So I, I think there's a sense in which he's what he's re, what he's referring to is very similar to what I'm referring to, and what Tomer's referring to yes. is I'm calling it a trap. Tomer talks about it just as this rights versus rights capture of the legal and social imaginary. That the field of political possibility is so delimited in Malaysia because of the capture by the state of the ability to both construe what is Islamic. What is this authentically Islam and authentically Islamic, and what is liberal secular, and that because the state has kind of monopolized that field of possibility, there's very little room um, for alternative interpretations. And not only is it these, that these judges don't choose to interpret, is that, and this is what I was getting at in talking about his surveys, it's that people have been socialized, kind of trained, and they've come to understand. Islam as what the state is telling them it is, as opposed to any number of other interpretations, which would be arguably equally valid or should be considered, yeah. um, given the you know multi-faceted uh, tradition um, as it's been lived out historically in many different contexts, including but not limited to the Malaysian context. Mm -hmm. So there. So I guess. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question. No, if you want to talk about other states, but there's a sense in which. Any state, from this perspective, that is claiming um, uh, to be a Christian state, um, a Muslim state, a Jewish state, is that that claim is a particular kind of politics and a particular kind of theopolitics that I think has to be, um, you know, unpacked and reckoned with and understood in much more nuanced way than what we usually see. Um, so. Any questions? We have uh, what? Ten more minutes before. Uh, or comments. Or what comments. Or oh yeah. Or you, you can't questions. all agree with everything that's said. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's after lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Question for information. You mentioned the book by Yogan. Yeah. Is that was that the book called the Other Within? Um. No, 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 that's not a book. It's uh, uh, Hegel, Nietzsche and the Jews. Um, and then I don't know this, don't remember the subtitle by heart. But if you uh, look at Hegel, Nietzsche and the Jews, you will find it. Yeah. And this quote was from the introduction. Yeah, yeah, it's the, the same, same author. author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Basically, creates the idea that there is this run or converted, you know, by, you know, the, the, the convert from um, Judaism to Christianity under forced under coercion from the runners. And this creates a split identity which is at the heart of European modernity. Mm. And I find that somehow reifies, um, you know. Something which is really very complex, 
So uh, that's why my ears pricked up when you mentioned his name. But your quotation yeah. seemed um, very, very interesting. So I, I just, so I, I need to follow that up. Mm, I, and I, I, I want to read, I, I have that book on my shelf yes. because it's sort of like what, what would be interesting to me there is that how it sort of like looks at how like um, um, uh, differences within identities, how this has a history in Europe and is part of the history of modernity and it, that it doesn't, um, uh, it, it doesn't start with a modern secular subject. And it's just not that so that that there's like um that that's what interests me in that book, but I didn't read it yet. But I read it in conjunction with a um a scathing review by David Nirenberg. Oh. Uh, and the title of his review is called The Unrenounceable Core. The Unrenounceable Core. I can't remember where he published it. If we're already discussing your will, I have to mention he's very interesting in this regard because Irmiyahu, and I'm sorry Yehuda is not here, or maybe he's out there, uh, because Yehuda wrote an interesting uh, uh, review of another project with which Irmiyahu Yovel was involved, which was an attempt at encyclopedying, so to, to make an encyclopedia of secular Jewish identity, where Yovel writes this introduction where he needs to account for what is secular Judaism. And he goes through a whole list of negation. It's not about law. It's not about religion. Obviously, it's you know it's secular. And he ends up with uh, an uh, uh, an affirmation that what defines the Jew as a Jew, specifically the secular Jew, is the anti-Semitic look at the Jew. So it's exactly the reverse of the quote you uh, mm -hmm. you mentioned. That in a sense, uh, the outside forces on the secular. So for, so without anti-Semitism, there would not be this project of. Uh, positively asserting uh, secular Jewish identity, which he was, uh, you know, setting to do in this uh, in this collection, which is very interesting. Which is like Sartre. It is, yeah, yeah. 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 So, mm -hmm. but he's not here to defend himself in this. So we, you know, we can't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, Eskander, please. Yes, yes. opting out and the Jews that we were talking about. And what do you think of that? Because I mean, one of the critiques, one of the critiques of I mean, Assad Mohammed is that um, it's very sort of an internal critique of Western liberalism. But then when you really push him on what sort of the alternative ways of being that he's sort of envisioning are much like Halak as well. I mean, it's sort of he's often critiqued being absolutely very kind of naive or romanticizing or pre-modern mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah. uh, oh, yeah. so I mean I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this, how do you think about this sort of these dilemmas of opting out and I don't want to put the couch in terms of religious freedom because it's like you don't want to perpetuate exactly the same sort of catch because you're deconstructing but then what would a sort of a positive way of being that would allow you could say ways of contesting or negotiating sort of communally defined ways of being, like what, how, how should we think about those, what kind of tools should we use, because it is this dilemma between the internal voice of secular modernity and then falling back into that, and then just living yeah. in, this, in this vicious sort of circle, so, uh, but it's important as well, I think we have to contend with that, I mean, anyone who knows, if you critique sort of Western liberalism and use also freedom of religion or proselytization of evangelism, you know, all these sorts of things, how it's tied to imperialism, all these sorts of, obviously I'm very much sympathetic, but 
that automatically from people within these contests who are actually contesting power relations in the local in the local setting, immediately they will come back to us and say, okay, we're using these tools to open up that kind of space so we can do X, Y, and Z. And I think it's something we can't just dismiss no. willy-nilly. I'm just reminded by yeah. Professor Sabah Mahmoud's um, critique of Abdul Karim Sarouj. So, I mean, for me personally, I think Abdul Karim Sarouj should be critiqued on many levels, but I think what she did in that article is essentially remove him from the Iranian context and then put him in this larger context, which I think Beth was talking about, which is sort of the war on terror, mm -hmm. moderate Muslim. I think that completely does a massive injustice mm -hmm. To Same to a context uh, which he was actually, in which course. he had a massive yep. transformative effect. So, I've, I've read a book where love is critiquing him, but you know, but I think you know we have to do it correctly and in the degree of sort of um, you know, insight and proportion and whatnot in the context and these sorts of things. So I was just wondering what you had any thoughts on. That. I, I I agree, and I think she did the same with uh, Nasser Abu Said. Uh, in the Egyptian uh, context, it's also a very problematic kind of, uh, and also romanticization of the of the of the Islamists' uh, 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 critique. So that's the risk mm -hmm. if you critique secularism of, uh, very much. Like, what is what is the kind of politics this is doing? And it's that's an, that's important. Um, what I would think is very important is like we in the break we talked about the decolonizing political theory. I think what we, what would would be important I think is to have to um, to use different categories at the same time so not concentrate on religion and secularism uh, uh, too much um, look at the history also their colonial history uh, um, but then also look at intersections with other concepts and fields like with uh, uh, race but also with gender uh, so uh, look at all and, and also how they interact. And I, I, I like uh, an article from uh, uh, Nikita Dawan. I don't know if you know her. She's a political theorist uh, of Indian background, but has been in Germany for a long while, and now she's working still in uh, Germany. And she has uh, one um, article. It's called uh, "The Empire Prays Back." And then um, uh, it's about all the dilemmas that there are from um, in different. Uh, and how difficult it is to address uh, power relations and inequalities, and that you need more categories. That, that, that's not what she says. That's what I say. I would say, <laughs> like different. But for example, she says somewhere there's no decolonization with without the subalternization. So also decolonization. It's not you cannot bet just on one term. You have to look at. I think the basic term still would be inequalities or social inequalities and their history and their very complicated histories and then look at all the different categorizations that play a role so and that you have to address positionality so in the different scales as well it's exactly like, I mean, like the local scale and then obviously then the broader of empire for instance i mean they might interact but then the way they do is needs to be thought about concretely i mean um, yeah, but uh, I, I agree, and so we need the different uh, uh, categories. We cannot just use one. And maybe I can react to the, what you said about sovereignty. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's still that's such a complicated and difficult uh, concept. So it's, it's the, the, but also like there was critique of sovereignty in the uh, Hannah Arendt already wrote about yeah. sovereignty, and like that it's also a distorting concept when you talk about the nation state in the sense that. Um, it has never been as sovereign as, 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 as well, you know, more. But yeah. I, I mean, for example, if you look at European political 
practices, etc. There's the, the the imaginary of sovereignty is very important, but the practices are Different. much more uh, like uh, uh, diffuse. Uh, diffuse. Yeah. 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 And so that's also needs to be in taken into account if yes. you look comparatively. Yes. That's then, yeah. Bill, yes, please. Interested in the way that we we so try to avoid essentialism, and so we just talk about contesting power relations. Um, but the people that are contesting power relations are often basing it not on. They don't think of themselves as contesting power relations. They think of themselves as defending the truth, right? And so we want to. We want to avoid essentialism, but, in, but one of the side effects of avoiding essentialism is not allowing people to claim that certain forms of Islam or Christianity or whatever are true, right? Like this is the real, the real Islam. This is the real Christianity. And in some ways, you have to allow people to make those kinds of claims. You have to allow them to do um, theology, and that's a really... Uh, that's a really difficult thing, um, and oftentimes we just want to shy away. And that, that seems like one of the reasons why we want to appeal to something like religious freedom, because we want to say, well, nobody can say what's true and what's not true. So well, all we can defend is your right to, um, to say whatever you want to say. Um, but in some ways, uh, that does an injustice to, to the idea. So the, the question that you raised, Yakov, like, what happens when you know, you say it's impossible, but you can't recognize reconcile Islam with this status thing. Well, what happens when it actually happens? Yeah. I mean, and I want to look at it from two angles. From one angle, you've got to look at it and so, now say, okay, maybe that is, empirically speaking, that is an expression of Islam. Yeah. Um, but you have to allow the normative judgments to yeah. go on as well for people yeah. that are Muslims to say, no, that's not. Yeah. You know, and here's and here's why. Here, here we have some kind of normative criteria yeah. to say that's, you know, that's uh, that's that's not the, yeah. the truth. I think we should uh, end here. Thank you so much for this. Um, <laughs> while we were sitting uh, without noticing, there's coffee and and some uh, refreshments uh, for all. We are meeting again. We we're reconvening at four, but stay here. Enjoy the refreshments. Thank you, thank oh, you so much. Talk about butlers more. Oh yes, yes, it's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it actually, ties exactly to what Bill was saying because it's a Jewish.